And apparently that's exactly what the Lord's will has been, because here we are, back at Luke 18. We'll begin our reading at verse 9. You might also remember that the passage immediately preceding this one, the one we considered two weeks ago, was one having to do with prayer, the parable of the persistent widow, and its lesson that Jesus drew for us that we should pray and not give up. Well, this passage in Luke's orderly account, as he calls it, also has to do with prayer, uh, but more as a window into the soul of the prayer than about prayer itself. As we listen to this, another of Jesus' parables, we look through the window of these prayers into the souls of these two characters, um, boldly painted and clearly by Jesus in this parable, and looking there, we catch a glimpse of our own souls as well. Let's pray. Father, in this matter of prayer, so oftentimes our souls are revealed. It's a frightening thing sometimes to pray in front of other people because of the window that it gives to them into the, what's really going on in our hearts. But Father, I pray that as we lift this prayer to you, what you will find as you look through this window into our hearts, the seer of all of our thoughts and the one who knows all of our deepest motives, that you will find there a sincerity on our part to receive your truth in our inmost parts and to find as a result that our lives are changed, recreated, made more and more to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in humility came to lay down his life for us. May we follow in his steps, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 18, beginning at verse 9, we'll read through verse 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There are only two kinds of people in the world, according to the reckoning of that French mathematician and man of letters and outstanding Christian, Blaise Pascal. There are only two kinds of people in the world, and we might add only two kinds of people in this sanctuary. The righteous, who know themselves sinners, and the rest... Sinners who think themselves righteous. 
Which one are you? Are you a righteous person who knows yourself to be a sinner? Or are you a sinner who believes yourself righteous? You are, you simply are, one or the other. Those are your only two choices. In the years I've spent as your pastor in ministry and in this place, in this location, in Owensboro, every person I've met, every person with whom I've spoken about the gospel, that is about the good news of Jesus Christ, has of necessity fallen into one of these categories or the other. Righteous people who know themselves sinners or sinners who think they're righteous. It was just as true in Jesus' day as it is in our own, which is why he was able to tell his disciples this parable the way he did, effectively lumping all mankind into one or the other of these two characters, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And with this story, Jesus invites all of us to find ourselves in this story. Look at them with me. With both the art of a storyteller and the and the the science of a mathematician, Jesus sets these two before us in point-by-point comparison. From the very beginning, before he even tells the parable, Jesus says the story is going to be about two kinds of people. There are, on the one hand, some who rely on themselves because they're righteous, or in Pascal's term, think themselves righteous, and regard others with contempt. And then the other... Others who are regarded with contempt by the first party. One is a Pharisee, the other is a tax collector. One stands by himself, the other stands far off. One proudly looks up to heaven, thanks God for his righteousness. The other can't even lift his eyes while he humbly pleads with God for reconciliation. One returns home without justification, that is, without being made right with God. The other returns home justified. One exalts himself and finds himself, will find himself, has found himself, eventually humbled. The other humbles himself and will find himself exalted. I ask you again, which one are you? Where do you fit? At one level, it's not a very difficult question to answer, is it? I mean, most of you here this morning are Christians. You are justified, like this man, the tax collector, who knew himself to be a man, who had committed many crimes and needed nothing so desperately as to be reconciled with God, from whom he had estranged himself by his sin, from whom he had separated himself by his many iniquities. Others of you here today, however, don't really think of yourselves as all that bad. Not really. I mean, sure, you've not been a perfect person, but you can always point to someone else who's been worse. Right? You can think, as a matter of fact, uh, that you're a pretty good person and you're a decent person, especially when compared to others, that you can name Believe me, I've heard that over and over again. People have told me, I'm not a bad person. And they've told you the same thing. But the great difference between Christians and non-Christians 
is not that Christians are good and that non-Christians are evil. That's not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The difference is that Christians know that they're evil, really profoundly, comprehensively evil, and that their evil is an offense to the holy, holy, holy God. They know that their evil is so evil that it required nothing less than the death of the Son of God on the cross of Jesus. Non-Christians don't really know their evil. They don't reckon with their wickedness of their sin the way Christians do and have. They don't see the desperate need in which they stand for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. As I say, I've heard people outside the church say it to my face. I heard it just a couple of weeks ago. Again, even in so many words, I'm not really a very bad person. I'm actually a pretty good person. He said to me, that person, these people are in Pascal's terms, sinners who believe themselves righteous. But here's the rub. Jesus was not talking about people who are outside the church. When he told this parable, the sinners who believed themselves righteous about whom Jesus was speaking were not what we would call unchurched people. They were rather church folk. They were people who were at church every time the doors were open. They were good people. They were righteous, quote unquote, people. They were upright people in the sense that they really did tithe on everything. They never ever slept with their neighbor's wife. They did never steal from their customers or from their employers. In that sense, the Pharisee in Jesus' parable really was truthful about himself to an extent. The scary thing is that this Pharisee was quite comfortable thinking very well of himself and looking down on others even as he stood right in the sanctuary of God. He was so blind to himself that he could actually station himself as close as possible to the holy of holies and the temple of God and feigned thanksgiving to God for how wonderful and how holy, how righteous he was, particularly compared to you-know-who, this tax collector. I say feign, that is pretend thanksgiving to God because he wasn't really even thanking God. He wasn't even talking to God at all. He was really talking to himself about himself while standing there in the temple of God. He may have started off by addressing his quote-unquote prayer to God, but immediately he lists a litany, a fairly impressive one at that, of I, 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 I. He was there in the temple, no less, to congratulate himself about himself. How different from the man whose only reference to himself was as a sinner. The sinner, as a matter of fact. That's how it reads in the Greek. The tax collector here uses the definite 
article to describe himself, the word the. He calls himself the sinner. Does that remind you of someone else? Remember someone else calling himself the sinner? Apostle Paul, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, sinners of whom I am foremost, Paul says, with a sharp eye only for his own sins, not for the sins of everybody else. It is as though in his mind he's the only sinner, he is the sinner in the temple. The tax collector is in his own eyes. So keenly does he see his own sins, the way he swindled others out of their money, the dishonesty, the pettiness of his own heart, the materialism, the love of money. He cannot see the sins of anyone else. All he can see is his own. But back to the rub and back to the point. Jesus doesn't tell us about the well-churched, nicely manicured Pharisees so that you and I can point our fingers at him and say, how bad is he? That would be ironic indeed if we were to spend the rest of this morning pointing our finger at that proud Pharisee and congratulating ourselves for not being like him. Jesus did not tell his disciples a story about the uh, Pharisee to help them feel better about themselves or us to feel better about ourselves. He told them, that is, he tells us this morning this story so that we may pause. Clean-cut, church-going people that we are. See my tongue firmly in my cheek to consider ourselves. Where are we in this parable? Really? Well, of course you say, I, I identify with the tax collector. I mean, I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that only by his righteousness am I able to enter heaven. Didn't we just confess our sins together just a few minutes ago with the 51st Psalm with broken words of grief? made our own and sorrow and repentance. Of course, I'm, I'm the tax collector. And that's right. That's good. I'm glad you're able to say those things of yourself. I earnestly expect that it is just so for you. But pride, that is what the Pharisee had in spades. I say pride or thinking too highly of ourselves is a very subtle sin. Pride disguises itself and hides itself deep in the crevices of our hearts. For the past week or so, Debbie and Rebecca have been making a new friend in our neighborhood. Becky calls him Hobbs, uh, an orange tabby cat who's been parking in our yard. I rounded the corner of the house a few days ago and, and found myself suddenly in a stare-down with the feline. C.S. Lewis knew about little Hobbes, or at least Hobbes's relatives. He wrote about them. We were talking about cats and dogs the other day and decided that both have consciences. But the dog, being an honest and humble person, always had a bad one. But the cat is a Pharisee, 
and always has a good one. When the cat sits and stares you out of countenance, he is thanking God that he is not as these dogs or these humans or even as these other cats. C.S. Lewis knew exactly what he was talking about. But maybe part of the reason I dislike cats so much is that they remind me of myself that there is far too much of the cat in my own heart, far too much of the time, and without really any good reason. The fact is, I will confess it, and if you will too, and if you're honest, you must. Though we know ourselves to be sinners, though we know that our salvation is found only in God and in God's mercy and grace alone, like this tax collector did, we still have at work in us this sinister, fallen condition called pride. We're too quick, far too quick, to congratulate ourselves on our goodness. Maybe not verbally, maybe not out loud in prayers. We're a little more skillful than that, aren't we? But in our hearts, patting ourselves on our back for the way we Give our tithes on what we get. The way we don't sleep with our neighbor's wife. The fact that we don't ever steal from our neighbor or boss. And at the same time, we have such a sharp eye for what other people are doing wrong. For the sins they commit the terrible things they do. We're ready to pounce on others' faults, prone to hold their sins against them, which is really just the demonstration of the fact that whatever we may say about ourselves, how we are sinners, how we're in need of forgiveness, how we have, we really haven't come, have we, to the understanding, we haven't come to grasp the darkness and the depth and the gravity of our sin, of the that we commit against God with every single thought that is against his law. The only reason you or I could have the temerity to point our fingers at another person and condemn him or her for those sins without knowledge, without love, and without necessity is that we really haven't come to a very good grasp of our own sin. And of what it cost our Lord Jesus to overcome it, to rescue us from them. What we need so desperately, brothers and sisters, is humility, humility, humility. But to get it, we first have to recognize just how terribly proud we are. C.S. Lewis, again, gives this counsel in his treasure trove for Christians entitled Mere Christianity. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think that you are not conceited, then you are conceited, very conceited. 
indeed. Humility grows, my brothers and sisters, as a sense of our sinfulness grows. A sense of the sinfulness of our sin grows. And you will know you have gone some distance toward acquiring humility when others' sins are neither an opportunity for you to look down your nose at them, nor to congratulate yourself for not having committed the same crime, but rather an occasion for you humbly to admit those same sins, every one of them are found in your own heart, even if only in seedling form, waiting to spring forth. Here's a simple rule. If you find a Christian who is eminent in humility, you will find a man or a woman who is thoroughly acquainted with his or her own sin, to whom the practice of confessing sin is second nature. Some of you know the name of Alexander White, even if only from hearing him quoted from this pulpit. He was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. He died in 1921. White was a Christian who impressed all who knew him with the depth of his humility and the many virtues uh, that are simply the public expression of humility in one way or another, kindliness and modesty and reverence and so on. Why did he advance as far as he did in humility? Well, for the very simple reason that he refused to ignore the truth about himself about his sin. His sin was always before him, his private sins, his public sins, and he was always confessing those sins to the Lord and even to others. And all of that confession of sin had its perfect fruit in him. A minister colleague of White's reports that on one occasion... When a prominent citizen of Edinburgh had been in prison and the whole city was aghast at the scandal. As Dr. White came into the vestry on Sunday morning, the bells were ringing for church. He turned to me and said, do you hear those bells? He hears them in his prison cell this morning. Man, it might have been me. There is a man, a very good man, but a man who knew his own sinful heart, had searched out the height and depth and breadth of his own sin and made him a man who did not think of himself as being better than others, but rather a man whose eyes were too low to look down on another, but rather who rejoiced that anyone, and most of all, the Lord, should love him. And that's the attitude all of us should have before one another. As we live before one another, as we live before the face of God, there is no sinner for us to look down on because we are the sinner. Maintaining a consciousness of our own sin and daily, 
dealing with that sin before the Lord, confessing it to him, turning from it to him again and again, which is what repentance is. Men, we talked about that in our Sunday school class. Like the guilty tax collector, throwing ourselves upon the mercy of God is the only way to gain that pure and spiritual humility which Christ loves. Ah, Now I hear you objecting. I hear you saying, Pastor, I know that I'm sinful. I'm all over this one. You have no idea how sinful I am. How burdened I am every day. All I think about is my sin. How sinful I am. How dark, how black are my sins. I'm a terrible person. I'm a wretched person. It seems like an hour doesn't go by, but then I'm reminded somehow, or must remind myself, how I can't do anything right. How I'm never able to be perfect, and what a miserable sinner I am. Well, watch out. That's the subtlety of pride. Pride's not only thinking of yourself too highly, it is thinking of yourself too much. Inverted pride is still pride. It's still making yourself the center of the universe. It's still acting as if life and the world really is about me. Whether that takes the form of patting oneself or flagellating oneself, whipping oneself on the back. The point of humility is that it's not at all about you. It's about God. It's about God's forgiveness and mercy and grace and love. It's not about wallowing in your sins and misery or about bragging about your accomplishments. It's about denying yourself altogether and following Christ, being plunged under the flood of Christ's cleansing blood. It's about the glory that God gets from saving you and washing and and cleansing you and forgiving you and using you to advance His kingdom. When you turn again and again and again and again from your sin to Him, you will know that you've made some progress in humility when you hear a shift of pronouns in your daily prayers and in your conversations from I, I, I to you, you, you. God, grant us the grace to turn our eyes from ourselves into Him. God, fill our eyes with himself, with both his impeccable, unbending holiness and his gracious, merciful forgiveness. That's what he does, you know. When you come to him hardly able to lift your eyes for the shame of your own sin, to confess them and to be delivered from them, from their guilt, from their power, from their corruption, by his grace, he puts his hand under your chin and raises your head. Pascal was right. There really are only two kinds of people in the world and in this sanctuary today. The righteous who know themselves sinners and sinners who think themselves 
righteous. Jesus made the same point in another way in the conclusion of the matter in drawing for us now the lesson of this parable. There are, Jesus says, only two kinds of people in the world. Those who exalt themselves and therefore will be humbled and those who humble themselves and therefore will be exalted. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Amen.